Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. O Father, with the words of that we have sung to thee, we thank thee for the law of the Lord that is perfect, converting the soul, the testimonies of the Lord that are sure, making wise the simple. Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy great glory, power, and wisdom in overruling, overturning, and confounding the wisdom of this world and turning it into foolishness. We thank the Lord that we, the poor, the weak, the pitiful, have been made wise by taking heed according to thy word. Grant us now that we might rightly divide it. Grant that we might give thee all the honor and the glory, that we might not be arrogant or cocky in ourselves, knowing that if we shall exalt ourselves, we shall be abased. But grant that we might abase ourselves before thee in thy holy word, and in due time be exalted with that word, that we might magnify it above thy very name, because that is the position to which you have magnified it. Heavenly Father, cause us to be excited about thy word, that we might spend time in it on a daily basis, and put it into practice in our lives, and thus keep those commandments that you've given to us, that we might prove that we are those that are the friends of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we are truly those that love him. And it's in his name that we pray for his honor and glory, the benefit of his church, the defense of his truth, the benefit of his sheep, in which we pray, amen. Let's review briefly what we covered last Sunday evening relative to the subject of the Christian and alcohol. I began last Sunday evening by telling you what an important subject this was to study and to analyze by the Word of God. Churches, ministers, schools, universities make a big deal about this issue. They'll require you to, do, to abstain from any use of alcoholic beverages in order to be part of their church, their school, or to be one of their ministers. This is one of the great tests of whether a person is a true Christian or not, whether they use intoxicating beverages or alcoholic beverages, or whether they abstain. I told you that even our Constitution prohibited the use of such beverages for 13 years back during the 20s and 30s. It's interesting to remember about that movement of the 30s, the 20s, and the teens called the temperance movement. Now, if they had stuck with the proper definition of that word, we wouldn't have any problem, would we? The temperance movement. Now, we're commanded to be temperate in all things. But temperance, my friends, does not mean abstinence. Temperance does not mean prohibition. Temperance means to be moderate, to put it in its proper place, to not go to excess or extreme on a subject. If they had just stuck to the definition of their movement, we'd have had no problem at all with the temperance movement. That's just what we'll be preaching this evening, is temperance in the use of wine and strong drink. But they didn't. They went to it the excess of taste, not religion, which Paul condemned in Colossians chapter 2. Now, last Sunday evening, I showed you that the Bible plainly condemns drunkenness. If you are a drunkard, all you give evidence of is that you will spend an eternity in hell. God hates drunkards, period. God hates drunkards. No drunkard shall have a part or an inheritance in the kingdom of God. No drunkard will be fellowshipped and communed with by the Lord's saints. Not one. He'll be put out. Drunkenness 
is listed right along with the sins of adultery, idolatry, extortion, and other gross crimes that the Bible lists that shall not inherit the kingdom of God, and drunkenness is one of them. However, I gave you the scriptural definition of what involves or what is what characterizes drunkenness. And just because you get a relaxed, warm, merry, glad feeling from a glass or two or three of wine does not constitute drunkenness. That depends on your constitution, the amount of drunk, the, the amount of alcohol you consume. If you start finding the characteristics that I listed for you, you have gone too far. You have abused alcohol. You have abused wine, and you're guilty of drunkenness. But feeling relaxed by drunken by alcohol is not a sin. That was the reason it was given. It's when you use it to an excess and you have some of those characteristics that were described last Sunday evening and that you will find in your outline. I then gave you several of the scriptural arguments you can use to show that the use of wine and strong drink are actually condoned, commended, or recommended in the Bible. We saw in Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15, that God created oil to you, for you to anoint your faces with so that your face can shine. He gave you bread to strengthen your heart. And we know that today. Bread is the staff of life. You go to those nation, you go to this nation. This nation that no longer, for the last several generations at least, has eaten whole bread. But processed bread, where they're not getting the fiber or the vitamins that they're supposed to be from that source, and you will find the greatest, the nation with the greatest frequency of heart disease of any nation on earth. Bread, with its fiber in particular, is very important for the heart. Now, that's a whole subject in itself. We don't have time to deal with tonight. God said it, I believe it, but medical science has proven it, has confirmed it, I should say. The fact that the Word of God says it proves it to me. It's perfect and it's sure just because I can read it there. But not only did God create oil and bread, He also created wine that makes glad the heart of man. Wine has an effect on causing you to relax. It's a depressant, just like a big meal does. It causes you to relax, to get sleepy, to forget some of the pressures, anxieties, frustrations that keep your nerves like a violin string all day long. Wine has that effect. That's why people like to use it. Drunkards like to use it for a completely different purpose just like a glutton likes to eat for a completely different purpose than those who eat for the pleasure, for the strength, and for the relaxation of eating. There's nothing wrong with eating for pleasure as long as pleasure isn't the only reason you're eating and you involve yourselves in gluttony. I showed you that in Deuteronomy chapter 14, God even recommended the use of wine and strong drink in His worship. When you came before the Lord once a year, you were to tithe one-tenth which would buy quite a bit, one-tenth of your produce, and come before the Lord and drink wine and strong drink with thy household. It didn't say you had to be 21 in order to enjoy. It said you and your household before the Lord and rejoice. Buy whatever your heart lusted after. Oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink. Deuteronomy 14. You keep that verse in your memory. It'll come in handy sometime when you run into one of these taste-not religionists. If you can remember Deuteronomy 14 and verse 26. 
We looked at several other examples of how the Bible does condone and commend the use of wine when it's kept in its proper place. The first argument that will be thrown against you, however, if you try to tell one of the modern fundamentalists, one of the modern legalists, one of the modern Pharisees, that God's Word actually condones the use of wine, is that the word wine doesn't mean wine. Wine doesn't mean wine in the Bible. That's how they'll argue against you. They'll tell you that you're working with an inferior Bible. You're using a King James Version. It's in English. It was translated from the Hebrew and the Greek. And they have gone back and done work in the original languages, and they know that wine does not mean wine in your King James Version. Now, we tend to differ with them, first of all, because they've never seen the original manuscripts. Second of all, they don't know what the words mean in the original manuscripts because both of those languages are dead as far as being used today like they were a thousand years when Moses wrote the word wine in Hebrew. There's no Hebrew words like that in use today with the same sense of meaning that they had back then. You've got to grant two big assumptions that these individuals have found the original manuscripts, and second, that they know how to properly interpret the sense. We believe that God has kept for us in His King James Version exactly what He wants us to know, and that's a premise for our faith. We don't have time to prove that in this sermon, but we all believe that, that these are the words God wants us to have. And if you stand alone on this book, God condones the use of wine, and there's no way around it. Because wine, not only in Scripture, but in the English language, has never meant grape juice. Wine has never meant a beverage that was unfermented. It has never meant that. It has never been used that way. It always means a fermented beverage, usually of the grape. Whenever it means some other fruit, it's specified, like blackberry wine or apple wine. But when you just see the word wine, it means the fermented beverage made from the grape. Now, I could have brought this evening, and I thought of doing it, but we don't have time to go through it carefully, a copy of Strong's Concordance for you to show you how to use it. When you look up the word wine, after it gives the entry, for instance, wine in Genesis chapter 9, where Noah made a vineyard and he drank wine, it'll show after that entry a little number that tells you the Hebrew word, supposedly, from which that English word was translated. And by doing a comparison you can see that the word wine and the different Hebrew words don't mean much because you'll find that the same wine that Melchizedek used in Genesis 14 is the wine that made Abraham drunk, Noah drunk, excuse me, in Genesis 9 and Lot drunk in Genesis 19. Same word. Same word as the one that Melchizedek brought forth to Abraham. Look in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 19. 2 Samuel 6 and verse 19. David is throwing a big party. In 2 Samuel 6, 19, he has brought the ark back to Jerusalem. And he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel. He fed the whole nation. Here's what he fed them. As well to the women as men. To everyone, a cake of bread, and a good piece of flesh, and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed, every one to his house. Now there's David. 
There's David taking the whole nation's going to be engaged in this feast, this celebration, and he gives them all a piece of bread, he gives them a good piece of meat, and he gives them a bottle of wine. That's David. Now, that word wine that we have there in 2 Samuel 6.19, according to Strong's Concordance, is the same wine that we read in Proverbs 23.31, Look not upon the wine when it is red. Well, now, it says not to look upon it, and there David is handing out a flagon of it to everyone in the nation, men and women. You need to remember that and make those people prove their point when they say, whenever the Bible condemns wine, it's talking about the alcoholic beverage. Whenever it condones wine, it's talking about the unfermented grape juice. Prove it. Prove it. They'll have a rough time. It's easy to assume that. And this gentleman here, Pastor Albert Smith, wants you to assume that as a fact, which we looked at last Sunday evening right on the front page. We could go on and on. I could multiply those examples, but we don't have time for that this evening. When the Bible uses the word wine and you look at the context, you can see that it's talking about an alcoholic beverage. I mean, people got drunk when they drank wine in the Bible. They poured wine into wounds. They were told not to be given to much wine. Now, would God have, would Paul have restricted deacons? Would Paul have restricted the elder, elderly women from too much grape juice? No, that's an intoxicating beverage. He's saying not to be given too much of that beverage, a fermented beverage, an intoxicating beverage. Wine, as it's always been used in our language, it means something that can make you drunk. It has an al alcoholic content in it which can cause intoxication or the, loose of you, the loss of your senses if you drink too much of it. That's what the Bible word wine means. That's what the context shows that it means. That's what the English word means. So don't let them throw that argument against you. They might try to say that the wine in the Bible is new wine, freshly squeezed from the grapes, and new wine does not make one drunk. But I showed you in Acts chapter 2 that the apostles who were accused of being drunk were accused of being drunk with new wine. New wine, Acts chapter 2. Let me give you another one or so on that. Hosea chapter 4 and verse 11. Hosea 4.11. Ezekiel... Daniel, Hosea 4 and verse 11. Whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. Whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. They all have their same effect in taking you away from God. Now, grape juice hasn't taken anyone away from God. Whoredom has, wine has, and so does new wine in Hosea 4.11. Then I gave you a few of the aspects of the process by which grapes are turned into wine. And you could see God's handiwork in it in limiting the alcoholic content of wine to about 14%. You've got to doctor it in order for it to be higher than that. Wine naturally is limited by natural process to about 14% alcoholic content. And then it quits fermenting. God made it that way. God made wine that makes glad the heart of man, and he made it very wisely. Now, what we concluded with last Sunday evening was a look at the pamphlet entitled 75 Bible References on Drinking 
by Pastor Albert Smith of the First Baptist Church in Sheffield, Alabama. And we made it through the first eight examples of this man's use of Scripture. Supposedly, according to the front page, he has given us 75 verses that condemn the use of alcoholic beverages. And if a preacher is to be true and faithful, he must preach against alcoholic beverages. Well, I want to be a faithful pastor, so we ought to look at this man's idea of his 75 references. Now, I've shown you that the Bible condones the use of alcohol. God made it for use, the use of wine. It is used by godly men. Its abuse is what is to be guarded against. Remember, and this is such an important lesson, in so many areas of our lives, we do not condemn a thing just because that thing can be abused. That is how a Pharisee thinks. And there's a reason for it. That kind of thinking is easier. If you make everything black and white and you just prohibit everything that can be dangerous, that makes life real easy, requires no judgment, no wisdom on your part at all, just a slavish fear of your leaders. That's all. Does wine make men drunk? Does wine cause drunkenness? Yeah, I went over this with a number of illustrations. No, wine doesn't cause drunkenness directly any more than a gun causes murders. Has a gun ever killed anyone? Has a gun ever killed anyone? No, no, it hasn't. It's either through ignorant misuse of the gun that it's killed someone or through intentional abuse of the gun that's killed someone. Murders come from that thing in your breast. And I speak figuratively. Murders come from your heart, not from a gun. You'd find, you'd find a baseball bat, a tire iron, your fists, or a chain if you didn't have a gun available, if your heart was bent on killing. Wine is not the cause of drunkenness. The heart of men, the hearts of men, are the cause of drunkenness when they abuse the good thing that God made. And that's true with everything. We can't throw out things just because they can be abused. That's what requires wisdom in a true Christian experience and conduct. The application of wisdom in sound principles. Things aren't laid out black and white. God has not laid out many things in black and white. It must be based upon sound wisdom. The use of a rod in disciplining children can be abused. You could break a child's back with the wrong kind of rod applied the wrong way in the wrong place. Does that mean we don't use a rod when the Bible commands us to use a rod? No. We just use it properly. We don't throw things out because they can be abused. Some of the entertainment in this world can be abused. The sports in America can be abused. Going to watch a sports event can be abused. That can become your God and one of the motiv motivating loves and affections in your life where all you do is think sports but does that mean we condemn all sports? No, sports can serve a godly place in our lives. Bodily exercise does profit a little. It's just that a thing can be abused, and it's our job to keep that thing in its proper place so that it doesn't become abused. That requires wisdom. 
And that's what Pharisees don't like because it takes the power out of their hands and into each man's conscience before God applying principles of wisdom. Not touch not, taste not, handle not laws that are easy to keep, easy to regulate. We don't have those. Drunkenness is the abuse of wine. It comes from the, its excess. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. You use wine properly, you won't be drunk. You take it to an excess, you'll be drunk. Just like all the other things that we deal with, you can abuse every creature of God if you wanted to. But the abuse of a thing doesn't make the thing itself evil. Television is abused. Movie theaters are abused. But does that make the thing itself wrong? No, it doesn't. And that's very important for a Christian to rightly divide between the abuse of a thing and the proper use of that thing. Now, some things have more proper use, usage than others. But nonetheless, the thing itself is not wrong. We've been over that television box many times before. The television box isn't evil. It's what your heart will allow you to sit there and feast on that's evil, not the television program itself. Now, we looked at the first eight examples in this pamphlet entitled 75 Bible References on Drinking. I'd like to take up where we left off last Sunday. We can't look at all of them, but we'll look at a few of them. The purpose in doing this is to give you a little experience in dealing with someone who holds this position, and second of all, just to give you more confidence and cause you to rejoice in the Word of God and to see how men twist it and how God can take the wisdom of men and turn it into foolishness. My friends, this pamphlet here is distributed out of Chicago by an organization that distributes anti-saloon-type literature. They sell this thing for nothing. They distribute millions of these pamphlets. This is a very popular pamphlet. Your pastor has not spent hours trying to find the most ridiculous one to make it look silly. This one's silly without me trying or without looking very hard. And that's what we want to see. Let's look at number 9, 1 Samuel 1, verses 14 and 15. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Let's first of all read Pastor Albert Smith's exposition of this text. He said, Hannah, an example of honored motherhood, refrained from drinking wine. Here are the verses he used. Verses 14 and 15. Remember, Eli, the high priest, took a look at Hannah praying to herself. Her mouth was moving, but she wasn't making any audible sound. And Eli thought Hannah must be drunk as she was praying. Verse 14, And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. My friends, do those, do those two verses say that Hannah did not drink wine? Do those two verses say that Hannah did not drink wine? Or do those two verses tell you that Hannah had not drunk wine immediately preceding her prayer so that she was not under the influence of that wine while she was moving her mouth but audible sounds weren't coming out? This verse doesn't say that Hannah didn't drink wine. It just says she hadn't drunk immediately before she came to the temple and prayed. Look at this woman, Hannah, an honored example of motherhood in verse 24. After the Lord answers her prayer and gives her Samuel, 
and she weaned Samuel and brings him to the temple. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bullocks and one ephah of flour and a bottle of wine and brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and the child was young. Why doesn't he put down verse 24 from 1 Samuel chapter 1? It's the same word. Why does he just use verses 14 and 15 and not verse 24? There's Hannah, an example of honored motherhood, bringing her bottle of wine to the temple. That's what the Word of God said. You can read that in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Let's go to 2 Samuel 13. 2 Samuel 13. You go with what a verse says and don't go any farther than what it says. All Hannah did was explain to Eli that the movement of her lips without sound was not, the ca was not caused by having drunk wine. It was because she was of a sorrowful spirit. Well, did that mean she was always of a sorrowful spirit? No, she had just been sorrowful at that time. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 28 and 29. Let's read our exposition. Ammon, it's Amnon anyway, in a drunken brawl was murdered by his brother Absalom. Remember, Amnon was the half-brother of Absalom who committed incest with his sister. And Absalom purposed to slay Amnon for doing that. This man says that Amnon in a drunken brawl was murdered by his brother Absalom. Let's read 2 Samuel 13, verses 28 and 29. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Mark ye now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say unto you, Smite Amnon, then kill him, fear not. Have not I commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did unto Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and every man gat him upon his mule and fled. Now, does this say that Amnon was killed in a drunken brawl? What I envision here is Amnon sitting in a lawn chair, drink, drinking in a very relaxed mode while, Am, while Absalom's servants come and kill him. It says nothing about a brawl, and it says nothing about being drunk. When a man's heart is merry, that doesn't mean he's drunk. That's why God gave wine, to cause the relaxation that brings the merry glad feeling. No drunken brawl involved. Let's turn over to Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1. Oh, is this a passage that's abused. Esther chapter 1. The more I read about King Ahasuerus, also known as Artaxerxes, also known as Darius, the more I like him. Esther chapter 1. In Esther chapter 1, we have Ahasuerus, who is married to a queen named Vashti, and he holds a big banquet. And they're drinking wine. What do you do at banquets? You drink wine. Jesus drank, Jesus made lots of wine at a banquet, at a wedding feast. And they're drinking wine here. Why, they were to drink wine before the Lord when they were rejoicing. And they're rejoicing here. Melchizedek brought out wine when there was reason to be rejoicing. And so did Ahasuerus. But look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. And here's what Pastor Albert Smith would have us see. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine... He commanded, and he gives a list of several of his aides there, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment 
by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. The explanation that we have here is, and listen to this, it's a lengthy one. Drank wrecks homes and separates man and wife. At a week's feast of food and wine, King Ahasuerus drunkenly tried to subject his queen to the beastly gaze of inebriated nobles, causing separation of the royal husband and wife. That passage doesn't say anything about anyone being inebriated, and it doesn't say anything about anyone having a beastly gaze toward anyone else. Ahasuerus wanted his queen, his wife, to come forth with the crown royal and show her beauty. There's not a thing in the world wrong with that. They still do that in England, don't they? They still do precisely the same thing when they call the queen forth for those special events where Queen Elizabeth shows her beauty with the crown royal to all her subjects. And they all look forward to that. But here is an example of wine breaking up a home, separating a man from his wife. Let's assume that for a minute. Ahasuerus has a problem. He's a drunkard. You get wine near him and all he wants to do is expose his wife to the beastly gaze of inebriated nobles. So what does Esther do when she becomes his wife? Ahasuerus puts Vashti away. Why? Because she disobeyed his command. And Esther chapter 1 is all about why he did that. But then Ahasuerus marries Esther, a Jew, a godly Jew, a God-fearing woman. And look what she does in Esther chapter 5. To this man who has great problems with alcohol, where wine will separate and break his family, what does Esther do for her husband? Verse 1, Now it came to pass in the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel, and stood in the inner court of the king's house, over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house, over against the gate of the house. And it was so, when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther? And what is thy request? It shall be even given thee to the half of the kingdom." And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day into the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Cause Haman to make haste, that he may do as Esther hath said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Verse 6. And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? So forth and so on. Here's Esther, who's married to this man who has a problem with wine. Every time he drinks a little wine, he wants to expose his wife to the beastly gaze of inebriated nobles. So what does Esther do? She brings him to a banquet of wine. One day? No. She feasts him this day, brings him the next day also to a second banquet of wine. That's what Esther did, the God-fearing queen of the Persian Empire, to her king Ahasuerus, who supposedly had his home wrecked, it separated him, and he was subject to drunken fits, whereby he would subject his wife to unheard of things before the nobles of that nation. Now that's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. Esther shows that there wasn't a thing wrong and she wasn't one bit afraid. And you know why she became queen, because of what had happened to Vashti. You'd think she'd know what went on. 
You'd think she'd know at least what Pastor Albert Smith knew, but instead she offered the wine also to her husband. Look at Job chapter 1. It's only over a few pages. Job chapter 1, Pastor Smith has this to say, The children of Job were feasting and drinking when blown away in a cyclone. My friends, were Job's children blown away in a cyclone because they were drinking and feasting? That's the implication he wants to leave with you. What does he raise that verse for? Remember, these are 75 references condemning the use of alcoholic beverages. Poor Job. Poor Job. His sons and his daughters didn't know how to behave themselves because they were eating and drinking in their eldest brother's house. Well, all you have to do is go to the end of Job, and God gives Job back seven sons and three daughters and doesn't say a word about their drinking and doesn't correct them for that at all. All he corrects is Job for becoming a little hasty in his speech and the three friends of Job for not giving the best advice. But not a thing said to the sons and the daughters. Ridiculous. This is ridiculous. It doesn't bear at all on the abuse of wine. Come over to Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 17. Proverbs 4, 17. Here is a description of wicked men in Proverbs 4, 17. It begins in verse 14. Enter not into the path of the wicked. Verse 17, for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. And what does Pastor Smith say? Violence results from drinking. Pastor Smith concludes from Proverbs 4.17 that violence results from drinking. Now, I'll not argue that excess of drinking will lead to violence. How do I know that? Proverbs 23 tells me. But I don't go here to prove it. Because Proverbs 23 tells me that drunkenness is involved when violence takes a man. Deception. Proverbs chapter 20. And verse 1, this verse says, They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. This is just a figure of speech using things that we use frequently, like wine and bread, to show that these people were filled with violence and filled with wickedness. I mean, if wine causes violence, what does bread cause? Wickedness. Do you see the absurdity of this man's reasoning? I know what you're thinking. You're you're still thinking that I had to look a long time to find this. A Baptist minister gave this to me as the final authority on the fact that we ought to teach total abstinence. This pamphlet, this is where I got it from. I didn't look for it. It was given to me as the best he had. Proverbs 4:17. This is a figure of speech. We use it. Paul one time said he was breathing out slaughtering. Did Paul breathe slaughtering? Was he a monster? that went around and breathed out slaughtering? No, that as often as he breathed, he was slaughtering. It's just a figure of speech to say he was involved in slaughtering. And these people eat the bread of wickedness. They're always acting wicked. And they drink the wine of violence. They're violent as often as the average man drinks wine. But this verse doesn't teach that wine causes violence. Is there anyone in here that has a question about that? If you have a question about that, please see me afterward. The Bible is going to be difficult for you to understand, understand, and I don't want to turn away your question if you have it. This verse does not say anything about wine causing drunkenness any more than bread causes wickedness. Now come to Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1. Finally, we come to a verse that we ought to deal with because this one has a little more substance to it. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1. Wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. 
And the argument runs, you know, wine will, wine will mock you. Strong drink will cause you to rage. And if you're deceived by it, you're not wise. A wise man won't touch it. As he says here, no wise man will indulge. That's the way the argument runs. Now, what is Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1 actually teaching? We already know that the Bible has established that there is a proper use of wine. We already know that. So we know that this verse cannot be condemning the proper use of wine. So what is it saying? Wine is a mocker. Wine is a mocker. Have you ever seen wine mock anyone? Have you ever seen wine mock anyone? Have you ever seen strong drink rage? Have you ever walked in to one of these 7-and-elevens or one of a, a store that sells alcoholic beverages and you saw the wine on the shelf mocking the other bottles and the strong drink raging? Did you see bottles of strong drink raging, violently jumping from shelf to shelf? Wine has never mocked anything and strong drink has never raged. What this verse is teaching is that the excessive use of wine will cause you to mock yourself. The excessive use of strong drink will cause you to rage. Wine's never mocked. Strong drink has never raged. Rage and mocking are the results of a sin nature. Wine can't do it. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise, one who thinks that that can't happen. This is an example of metonymy. We've been, we went over metonymy about a year ago. Remember, metonymy is a figure of speech where we substitute the cause for the effect. Where we substitute the cause for the effect. Let me give you a couple of examples that you use. We might say of someone who accomplished something brilliant, we might say of him, he really used his head in that matter. If you had a real problem at work and you solved it, someone might say of you, he really used his head. Now you weren't around, you weren't down on your hands and knees pushing around with your head. The head is simply a figure of speech, meaning the apparatus inside of it and the effect of using what's in that head. We talk about stepping on the gas in a car, but you never step in the tank and you never step on a puddle of gas. You're talking about the accelerator, which is, uses the gas. The Bible says the rod brings wisdom. Now, if, if you can take a rod, you can go to Kmart and buy a half-inch dowel, put it in your closet, and it's not going to make anyone in your household wiser for having it there in your closet. But the Bible says the rod gives wisdom, Proverbs 29, 15. It's a figure of speech where the cause is substituted for the effect. The proper use of the rod in disciplining your children will cause them to be wise. But God saves a lot of words by using a figure of speech just like we would. The rod brings wisdom. The tongue is a fire. Has your tongue ever flamed up on you? Now, I know in the morning sometimes it feels like it might. But has your tongue ever flamed up on you? But James says the tongue is a fire. The improper use of that tongue can cause a fire. The improper use of that tongue can cause a fire. See, the, the cause is put for the effect. The tongue being abused can cause a fire by the things it will say to others. That's what we have right here in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1. Wine hasn't mocked, it cannot mock. Strong drink has never raged, and it cannot rage. Wine only mocks those who use it to an excess, and strong drink only rages when, those, when someone uses it to excess and rages themselves. 
That's what's under condemnation here. If wine moderately used is a mocker, which is what they want this verse to teach, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, prince, priest of the Most High God, used wine. He mocked himself. Christ used it. David used it. Timothy used it. Did these men mock themselves? Did these men rage? No. It's the excessive use of that thing, and the cause is simply placed for the effect. You'll want to know that when anyone takes you to Proverbs 20 and verse 1. You'll want a couple cross-references such as the rod brings wisdom, Proverbs 29, 15, or the tongue is a fire, James 3, 6. For instance, let me give you another example. Remember the rich man in hell? He asked Abraham to send someone back to his brothers that they wouldn't come to this place. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear him. Let them hear them. Now, do those brothers have Moses? Did those brothers have the prophets? No, they had the effect of Moses and the prophets in the Old Testament. They had the scriptures. But God saves all the language by using a figure of speech we often use and simply said they have Moses and the prophets. The cause put for the effect. That's Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1. Wine will mock you if you drink it to an excess. You will do things later that you regret, that you will regret. You will act foolishly and mock yourself. If you drink strong drink to an excess, it could lead you to violence, to raging, that you will later regret. And if you don't think that can happen, you have been deceived by those by wine and strong drink. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. It can do that if you use it to an excess, but a proper use of it will not cause that. Let's go now to Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 17. Proverbs 21, 17. He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. Proverbs 21, 17, his commentary is, He that loveth wine is not rich. But you have to include oil also. You have to include oil also, and you have to include pleasure also. Is pleasure a sin in and of itself? No. Can pleasure be abused? Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God? Certainly. Oil, can it be abused? Certainly. Wine, can it be abused, and will it lead you to poverty? Certainly. A lot of rich men used it, however, according to the Word of God. David, Solomon, Esther, Ahasuerus, and others used wine. They were rich, and it did not deplete their riches because they used it because they used it moderately within its proper place. Any one of those three things can cause you to be poor if you abuse it. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 21. Proverbs 23, 21. Now, let's learn to read our Bibles. The Bible says, For the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. Pastor Smith tells us in number 20, drinking leads to poverty. Does Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 21 deal with drinking? No, it doesn't deal with drinking. It deals with drunkenness. Any more than by using the word gluttony, it deals with eating. Do you, do you see the distinction? Drunkenness and drinking are so far from each other, they're not to be related or confused, just like eating and gluttony 
is so far from one another, they're not to be confused. Just because this verse condemns gluttony doesn't condemn eating. And just because it condemns drunkenness, it doesn't condemn drinking. It doesn't even deal with the subject of drinking. But now that we're in Proverbs 23, we have another passage that has a little more substance to it that will be raised in an attempt to show that the Bible teaches total abstinence. Verse 29, Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? Pastor Smith says, Strong drink produces sorrow, contentions, wounds without cause, babblings, redness of eyes. Does strong drink cause those things? Or does tarrying long at the wine and strong drink cause those things? Let's read the Bible. The next verse tells us. They that tarry... The questions have been asked. Who has all these problems? The answer is in verse 30. They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. What is under consideration here is those who tarry at it and drink to a drunken stupor who are vomiting after you read a few more verses, who are babbling. They're totally out of control. That is what's under consideration here in these verses. Now, we don't have time to deal with all of his little points, but the whole passage is dealing with drunkenness, and that is plainly condemned in Scripture, and it's plainly condemned right here. But now let's look at verse 31. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. Pastor Smith says, Do not be tempted by intoxicants. I have literature I could have brought and put in your hands that actually takes this verse literally and tells you you can't look at it. It's such a deceitful thing you can't look at it because the Bible says, Look not thou upon the wine when it is red. How are you going to handle that verse? How are you going to handle that verse? Looking in this verse is another, another form of metonymy where looking is placed for unlawful looking or looking with an improper desire. Let me give you an example of that. If you can keep your finger there, flip back to Job 31.1. Job 31.1. When I was preaching to you on the subject of marriage and divorce, we made reference to this verse. Let's look at it again and see the same thing taught here. Job said, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Now a maid's a single woman. A maid's a single woman, a virgin in Scripture. Job said, I've made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Now, are we to take that verse literally? Job couldn't think about a maid. He had three, his daughters. Couldn't think about him. Couldn't think about him. What is under consideration here in Job 31.1? An unlawful desire toward a maid that would be sin, that would be adultery of the heart, lusting after a woman and her beauty in your heart which Solomon condemned over in the book of Proverbs. The same use is under consideration back in Proverbs 23 when God tells us, Look not thou upon the wine when it is red. He's dealing with drunkards who, in the last verse of that chapter, when they awake, I will seek it yet again. They are alcoholics who must have it and who look at it with great desire and it has control over them. They watch it. They watch the bubbles arise in the glass. They're mesmerized by it. They are addicted to it. It has control over them. An unlawful desire for it, to drink it to an excess. 
is what's under consideration when the Bible says, Look not thou upon the wine. You want to take it literally? You have all those men in Scripture that we've already made reference to who not only looked upon it, but drank upon it. And did you know God looked upon it also? Why were there drink offerings made? Do you know why they're called drink offerings? Because God's not there to drink it in person, so you poured it out in His presence. That's why it's called a drink offering. That's why you brought Him meat, and God likes salt on His meat. You prepared it just as if you were having a feast with God. You cut off certain parts of the fat, certain parts of the bowels, discarded them, salted the meat, and poured out a drink offering. God looked on it. What about that feast those Israelites were to go to once a year and drink wine and strong drink before the Lord? Before the Lord? Before the Lord? In the place where he was, where he was looking upon it. This is talking about an unlawful look, just like Job was talking about unlawful thinking. There are other examples I could give you, but we are now in a race with my watch. Let's look now at Isaiah chapter 5. We're going to skip the rest in Proverbs, and let's go to Isaiah chapter 5. Let's not skip the rest in Proverbs. Go to Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs 31, verses 4 and 5. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. The argument goes this way. Let's see what Pastor Smith has to say. Kings and all other rulers or officials with the weight of human lives in their control should not indulge. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine. But the kind of drinking under consideration here is plainly given to us in verse 5. Lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. The type of drinking under consideration causes or leads to the loss of memory, the forgetting of the law, the perverting of judgment, which requires a great deal of drinking. Why David himself made Uriah drunk. But did Uriah lose his judgment? Did Uriah pervert his judgment? Still wouldn't go into Bathsheba's house, do you remember? Still had it there. Still had it there. This is talking about drinking to an excess that would cause you to lose your judgment in a position of authority. The minute you take this verse to rule out drinking for kings, what about the king of Salem? Melchizedek himself. What about the king of kings? Jesus Christ. What about the king of Persia? Ahasuerus. What about the king of Israel? David. They all drank. What about Solomon? He urged the drinking. What about David? He commended the drinking, and he passed it out to all within the nation of Israel. This verse must be limited by all those examples, by the weight of Scripture, and by looking at the context, we can see exactly how it is limited. Those in positions of authority must be more cautious than the rank and file because greater responsibility is upon them to always have their senses exercised and able to discern between good and evil and to exercise sound judgment. And we'll see that as soon as we get to the New Testament. Let's go to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Here's one that will be used against you if anyone ever finds out that you hold a moderate position on the use of alcoholic beverages. The example of Daniel... Daniel chapter 1. Remember, Daniel has been hauled in to be a eunuch. 
before Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar picked the diet for these eunuchs. But here's Daniel's answer in verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Daniel purposed in his heart. Daniel had some reason that he purposed not to take this menu from King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, what was the reason for it? Why did Daniel purpose? Did Daniel purpose because of what Pastor Albert Smith tells us? God honored Daniel because he abstained from the king's wine. Daniel, the man, was true to the home training he had received as a boy. Did Daniel refuse the king's wine because he had been taught as a boy he shouldn't touch a drop? If that's true, why did he refuse the king's meat? Why did Daniel refuse the wine and the meat of Nebuchadnezzar? I'll tell you why. It's because that meat and that wine had been offered to the gods of Nebuchadnezzar, and by eating them, it would defile him. You can know that by the use of the word defile. It was going to defile him. It wasn't going to intoxicate him. It wasn't going to lead him astray. It was going to defile him. And that's why both meat and wine are included. Even the pagan deities received meat offerings and drink offerings. And Daniel was not going to defile himself. If you want to use Daniel as an example of the epitome of practicing his boyhood training, then you've got to reduce yourself to a diet of water and beans and peas. Because Daniel ate, drank water and ate pulse. And pulse are leguminous plants like beans and peas. Now, if you want to limit yourself to water and beans and peas, then you've got Daniel chapter 1, but you'll be misusing Scripture to use it. Daniel wouldn't eat Nebuchadnezzar's portion because it would defile him because it had been offered to false gods. One more thing on Daniel while we're there. Look at Daniel chapter 10 and verse 3. Daniel 10 and verse 3. Let's see what Daniel does after he's in authority where he can determine whether the wine has been offered to pagan gods or not. Daniel 10 and verse 3. In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. What did he do after that? What did he do before that three-week period? He ate meat and he drank wine after he was number one in the kingdom under the king himself when he knew what had been offered to gods or not. Daniel ate and drank and God was with him. Come over now to Habakkuk chapter 2. The book of Habakkuk, toward the end of your Old Testament. Oh, is this one that is ever abused. This is the one that condemns social drinking. This is the one that condemns working at the 7-Eleven where you might have to take someone's money for a six-pack. This is the one that condemns giving a drink to your neighbor. This is the one that condemns you ever offering a glass of wine to someone who might be eating a meal in your home. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 15. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him. There we have it. The Bible very plainly pronounces a woe upon those that give their neighbor drink and put their bottle to him. Any of you who have ever talked to one of these legalists 
know that this is one of their favorite verses. This condemns social drinking. This condemns your involvement in transporting, selling, or in being involved in the alcohol industry, the wine industry. Habakkuk 2.15 is their proof text. What is Habakkuk 2.15 teaching? Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Habakkuk 2.15 is condemning giving enough drink to your neighbor to cause him to be drunk so that you can look on his nakedness. You say that's such an extreme example. No one's ever been guilty of that. What about Lot's two daughters? What about Lot's two daughters? Genesis chapter 19. They were guilty of the very crime right here. The use of alcohol to obtain sexual favors. That's what God's, that's what's being condemned here. Drunkenness. Causing your neighbor to be drunk so that you can commit some abomination with him. Let's go to Luke 1 15. Luke chapter 1 and verse 15. I wish we could look at all of these. If you'll, re if you'll look them all up, you'll find that I haven't tried to pick just the easy ones. I've picked the best ones that he has. The ones that will be most frequently used to defend the position of total abstinence. Luke 1.15, Pastor Albert Smith tells us that this text is going to tell us that the greatness of John the Baptist is linked with his total abstinence. Luke 1.15, For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. Now, if you know how to read the English language, this verse does not show any cause and effect between abstaining from wine and strong drink and being great in the sight of the Lord. It's just listing some of the characteristics of John the Baptist. He's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. He's not going to drink wine nor strong drink, and he's going to be filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. Now, if I had a choice to make what made John the Baptist great, I would say that it's being filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. Do I have any agreement? Or is it not drinking wine and strong drink? Can you think of one who is greater than John the Baptist? Can you think of one? Let's look at Luke chapter 7 and ask ourselves why Pastor Smith didn't put this passage in. Luke chapter 7, verses 33 and 34. Jesus Christ is speaking. If you've got a red-letter edition, it ought to be in the red print. Verse 33, Jesus said, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And ye say, He hath a devil. This guy is so strange. He's eating honey and wild locusts. He's so strange, he must have a devil in him. Verse 34, The Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself, is come, eating and drinking. And ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. There's one greater than John the Baptist, and he drank wine. That's why he was called a wine-bibber. You don't call someone a drunkard who's known as a total abstainer. When was the last time you heard someone call a Mormon a drunkard? You don't hear that. You don't hear that. Look at Romans chapter 14 and verse 21. Romans 14, 21. These are verses that are often raised to try and support the position that we ought to totally condemn any use of alcoholic beverages. Romans 14, 21. 
Drinking causes a brother to stumble, is Pastor Albert Smith's words of wisdom to us. Drinking causes a brother to stumble. Well, now here's what Paul said. Verse four, Romans 14, 21. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Now what kind of drinking is under consideration in Romans chapter 14? And what kind of eating is under consideration in Romans 14? Do all of you know what kind of eating and drinking is under consideration? The same eating and drinking that Daniel didn't want to be defiled with. Meat and wine offered in sacrifice to idols. There was no problem back in 60 A.D. with people being offended because someone had a drink, because someone took a drink of wine. But there were Christians who were offended when you drank wine or ate meat that had been offered in sacrifice to an idol. That's what's being condemned in Romans 14. Read it. Read 1 Corinthians 8. Read 1 Corinthians 10 and find out what the offense issue was in the early church. It was the association with idolatry, not the association with wine. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3, number 75 on his list. It ought to be a good one. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3. 1 Timothy is a letter from one minister, an apostle, the Apostle Paul, to another minister, the young man Timothy. Chapter 3 are the qualifications for a minister and for a deacon. 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, a minister, a bishop, verse 2, must not be given to wine. 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, a bishop must not be given to wine. Verse 8, likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine. Verse, according to number 75, Pastor Albert Smith tells us church officers must not drink, neither should their families, from these verses. Church officers must not drink. Now, let's just think about that for a minute and rule out deacons. Paul tells Timothy that deacons should not be given to much wine. What could they be given to? A little wine. What did, we'll get to Timothy in just a second. They couldn't be given to much wine. What does that assume? That they can use a little wine. The same thing with the elderly women in Titus chapter 2. The same thing. Now, let's answer the question what it means to be given to. We know that two chapters after this, two chapters after this, Paul told Timothy to use a little wine. Now in chapter 3, he's telling him a bishop, and Timothy was a bishop. A bishop must not be given to wine. Then in chapter 5, in verse 23, Paul tells that same man, use a little wine. What does it mean not to be given to wine? A minister shouldn't be given to wine. Jesus Christ, supposedly, is the minister of the circumcision, is he not? Is he? He used it. How about Melchizedek, a type of Christ? Was he a minister? He was a priest of the Most High God. He used it. Timothy used it. What does it mean not to be given to much wine? Come over to Titus chapter 1, and I believe we can find out. Titus chapter 1. First of all, though, I'll give you the English definition of that word given to when it's used in a construction with to. When someone is given to something, what does that expression mean in the English language? It means that someone is inclined, disposed, addicted, or prone to that given thing. 
When you're given to something, something, you're addicted to it, you're prone to it, you're disposed to it, you're inclined to it. That's the English use of the word. Now let's see how the Bible uses it. Titus chapter 1, again dealing with the qualifications of a bishop, verse 7. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, there's that same expression, not given to filthy lucre. Not given to filthy lucre. Can a minister use filthy lucre? Can a minister use filthy lucre? Can a minister survive without using filthy lucre? Are you supposed to give your minister filthy lucre? Luke 16, is a minister to make friends with filthy lucre? Yes, 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 and yes to all those questions. But he's not to be given to it. He's not to be addicted to money. He's not to be inclined to go running after money, prone to money. That's what it means, not given to filthy lucre. The same thing it means when it says not given to wine. Not addicted to wine, not prone to wine, not inclined to be a drinker of wine. Because he's got to maintain an example that's above reproach before his congregation and maintain sharp senses to discern and exercise sound judgment. But Paul went right on to say they could use a little wine. He just couldn't be given to it. You know that bishops have to use filthy lucre, so the prohibition not given to filthy lucre simply means they're not addicted to it. That's not a priority in their lives, and neither should wine be. They should not have any problem with wine at all. No proneness to it whatsoever. Now that deals with the arguments of, the, of these 75 that I felt were worthy of our attention. There are others there that aren't worthy of our attention. You can look at those on your own. I want to conclude this evening by spending just a few minutes to tell you how drinking is limited by the Word of God. First of all, we know drunkenness is prohibited. You lose control of your senses and you drink to an excess where you're intoxicated and you're drunk based on the Bible definition of that word or the definition of our society, the definition of our society, you will be classified as a brother who is a drunkard and excluded from this congregation. That is very plain, is it not? The reason we go by the judgments of this nation is because we're to submit ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake and nowhere has God commanded us to drink wine to that level of intoxication. That's a matter of liberty. And in a matter of liberty, the laws of our nation overrule. So if you're driving down the highway and you get stopped and you don't pass the breathalyzer test, and you're written up in the papers being drunk, and it's of, of common report, you will be excluded as a drunkard, no qualifications, modifications, or questions. You, and you all understand that, I believe. That's the first rule. Second, a wise man will use great care and caution in using wine. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 10, it's a wise king who uses wine and eating for strength and not for drunkenness. We're to use it for a good purpose. God gave it a good purpose, but don't use it to get drunk. Don't use it to lose your senses. Use it to dull your senses in the right place at the right time. Yes. Just like eating does. Just like ActiveFed does. Just like a sleeping pill does. And just like tranquilizers do. And do they serve a useful function? Yes. Can they be abused? Very definitely. Very definitely. 
Wine can mock you if you're deceived by it. If you think you can drink all you want and you can control yourself and you're a big tough man or a big tough woman and you can eat, drink anyone under the table, you're a fool. You're a fool. That will get you. It will get you. And you're a fool if you think that. These are the limitations the Bible puts on it. That's Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1. Paul repeatedly warns against the use of much wine. Not given to much wine. Use a little wine for thy stomach's sake. Be discreet. We must use care in a liberty such as this. Those in religious and civil leadership must be extra cautious for the reasons already given because they have to exercise judgment. So they should use even less than others would in order to set an example and to always be ready to execute their office. A cocky, arrogant attitude about liberty on this matter is not the attitude of a Christian. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians 8, 1. And when you're dealing with a matter of liberty, like alcohol, there are three chapters you want to remember. Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, and 1 Corinthians 10. Those are the three chapters that deal with Christian liberty. Look at the first verse of 1 Corinthians 8. Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And I say to you right now, now as touching alcoholic beverages such as wine and strong drink, we all have knowledge. I have communicated that knowledge from the Word of God to you. Knowledge puffeth up. Anyone who goes around bragging about their ability to control alcohol or their liberty to use it is a fool and a foolish Christian. That's knowledge puffing you up. It's not to do that. We are to edify one another by suppressing that liberty and using it only in select cases. Knowledge puffs up. I know the, I know the result from two sermons like this. It's a puffed up attitude. Now, I've been, you may think that I've been cocky. I've been sarcastic with Pastor Albert Smith. I've intended to be. Not about the use of wine and strong drink, but about the abuse of Scripture and how you can all see through the arguments of a man who's having his pamphlets spread nationwide. I get excited about things like that. And he ought to be mocked and ridiculed, just like Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal. And Jesus Christ mocked the prophets of the Pharisees. But I don't mock the deceitfulness and the danger of using alcoholic beverages to an excess. And don't you let that happen. Knowledge puffeth up. The more knowledge that is communicated, the more danger there is of walking in pride and having an arrogant attitude that I can handle that. And by boasting about it to others, our church teaches the moderate use of alcohol. That is not Christian evangelism. When you know someone well who already knows that position or who can handle it, it is a good one for a Bible study with them. But we don't go around broadcasting it. If you have a reason for not using alcoholic beverages yourself, don't you use them. If you've got a reason and you're convinced in your conscience you ought not to for whatever reason that might be, don't you do it. Did you know there's a whole chapter in the Bible, Jeremiah 35, about a group of men called the Rechabites, whose father said that we will never drink wine and a number of other things that they wouldn't do either in an effort to show the nation of Israel how serious they were about returning to God. Now, they didn't put away wine because it leads to intoxication. They put away wine because it's one of the pleasures of life. They put away owning property. They put away eating certain foods. The whole chapter of Jeremiah 35 is about that. 
And God commended those Rechabites because they hung in there year after year and didn't drink wine and didn't do any of the other things their father had told them not to do. And God commended them. If you have some reason that your family will not drink wine or you're not going to drink wine, that is fine. That's between you and God. And you hang in there. Brother, you stand firm in your commitment not to do that. That's your responsibility because that's what your conscience is requiring of you. Some of you may have had alcoholic problems in the past. The Corinthians had some. We may have an alcoholic join this church. He's got a good reason to keep away from that stuff if he has a serious problem with it. We're to make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And if you are an alcoholic or were an alcoholic, if you were an alcoholic, let me get that verb tense correct. If you were an alcoholic, you don't want to make a provision to become drunk again or to submit yourself to that same bond master. You don't want to use it. Put it away. No matter how much liberty exists for a thing, it must not create bondage. Turn back one page to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Paul said, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. If you find yourself having to have a drink every night, even if it's just that one or two glasses of wine, even if it's just the one or two glasses of wine that cause no drunkenness at all, that don't even approach Bible drunkenness, you are sinning if you have to have it. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Notice what I said. If you have to have your glass or two every night, you are being brought into the power of something, and Paul said that is wrong. This is a verse that goes against smoking. You can't condemn smoking with a Bible verse. You can't show one verse in the Word of God that tells you you can't put a cigarette between your lips and suck on that stupid smoke. You're going to look like an idiot, and it's as foolish as all get out. But you can't find a Bible verse that condemns it, but I'll find a Bible verse that gets very close to it right here. And that is, I'll not be brought under the power of anything. Anything that leads to addiction is something we, got to, we need to be very careful about. And anyone who's getting excited because I said that cigarette smoking isn't condemned by a plain verse, either is coffee drinking. And coffee drinking can get you under its power just as much as cigarette smoking. So is the use of soft drinks that have the same caffeine. And if I had to make a judgment on which is worse for your health, I'd pick the soft drinks any day over an occasional cigarette. No matter how much liberty exists for a thing, if you begin to be brought into the power of it, it's got to go. It has to go. That's a rule of Christian liberty. Your faith about liberty such as alcohol should be kept a private matter. Hast thou faith? Paul said in Romans chapter 14, have it to thyself. Don't go around broadcasting about your liberty. We don't need to know and no one else needs to know. We, we, we tend to get evangelistic when it comes to Christian liberty, wanting to go out and tell everyone how we've been freed by the gospel, while we can drink, smoke, and chew. That isn't Christian evangelism. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself. Yes, and I listed three things you can't condemn with a Bible verse. I think a couple of them are rather foolish, but you can't condemn them with a Bible verse. But we don't go around talking about it. You should not use anything, even if it's lawful, if you have any doubts about it. If you were raised to look at that, to look at alcoholic beverages as something sinful, and I was, I don't have the problem anymore, 
But if you may have the problem, it may still hang on there. It may still be in your conscience an evil thing when you look at it. If that's true, don't touch it. Don't touch it. He that doubteth is damned if he eat. If you eat something, if you drink something that you have doubts about, in your conscience you're saying, I'm not sure I should be doing this. God might still consider this a sin. Because of a weak conscience, you are sinning to go ahead and do that, even though the thing itself may be all right. You may hear the pastor teach on the use of wine. The pastor says the Bible condones it. God created it for our use. All these godly men used it. You go to the grocery store and buy a bottle. You bring it home. You pour yourself a glass. You look at that glass. You start shaking. You get a cold sweat in your hands. You remember 30 years of being taught that that thing is evil. Throw it away. If you eat it, you've sinned against your God. Because in your conscience, you're going against God, and to drink it would be a sin. Not because the, the glass itself is wrong, but because you have put a con construction upon the drinking of that that is wrong. Paul said, all things are clean to me, but to the man that drinks with a defiled conscience, it's unclean, even though the thing itself might be lawful. You've got to use your Christian liberty carefully in relation to the knowledge and ability of others. Weak brothers may be offended, like the example I just gave you. There may be weak brothers because of the upbringing they had who can't handle Drinking wine with a meal. Commonplace. It is your responsibility not to offend them. If a brother is offended with the use of alcohol, we're not to use alcohol in front of them. Paul said, if a brother was offended with the eating of meat, I'll eat no meat. Just by chance that it might have been offered to an idol, I'll eat no meat while the world stands, Paul said. That's the attitude we're to have. If anyone... And listen, you can summarize all three of those chapters on Christian liberty to this single point. A brother is offended when because of the lack of proper instruction and or a weak conscience, he thinks that the use of a thing is sinful. He's in ignorance. He's weak. It's his fault. It's his conscience that's judging you in this matter. But that's the whole principle. His conscience does have authority over you you are not to talk about it in his presence. You are not to use it in his presence. That is causing a brother to stumble. You're going to cause that brother to sin against Christ. You offer him wine. You let him see that you use wine. You talk about the use of wine, and he has a problem with it. If he goes home and drinks it, he's sinned against Christ, and you're the cause of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The kingdom of God, my friends, is not meat and drink. The kingdom of God is not going around telling people about our kingdom. We drink wine. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And when you have weak brothers that are offended with the drinking of wine, you're not creating peace. You're creating great struggles in another man's conscience. Don't do it. Don't do it. Knowledge puffs up, my friend, but charity edifies. Charity is always looking, how can I help that brother? Pride is the one that wants to go to that brother and tell him how liberated you are. That's a fool. And that's pride. Charity is going to go with that brother, find out he's got a weak conscience, and go out of your way to help him and not to see anything in your life that would lead him to sin. That's charity. That's what we want to have here in our church. Now I'm going to qualify that offense. You are not obligated. You are not obligated to search for those who may be offended. Now I've just laid on you all the obligation that you have, the responsibility not to offend a brother who has a weak conscience. But the Bible also teaches you have no obligation 
to go looking for that weak brother or to assume that there are weak brothers until you have good evidence. Do you hear me loud and clear? You are responsible to protect weak brothers, but you are under no obligation to go looking for them. Paul said when you went to the meat shambles, the meat market to buy meat, you, you didn't ask anything. Ask nothing for conscience sake. You know, don't find out that it was offered to an idol. Just buy your meat, go home and eat it. You go to a feast, an unbeliever, an idol worshiper. He, he lays some meat out in front of you. Don't ask if it was offered to an idol. Just eat it. But if he brings it to your attention, if he brings it to your attention, this meat's offered to an idol. I've heard that you believe in this God that lives in heaven and has a son named Jesus Christ. We offer this meat to an idol. Enjoy. When he says that, you're to put that meat away. If anyone ever sees you buying a bottle of wine in the store, drinking a bottle of wine at home, or mentioning a bottle of wine to anyone else, and says to you, I didn't know that you drank wine. I just can't do that. You get rid of that and don't let them see that again. They've brought it to your attention. But you don't have to go around the church asking everyone and keeping a little diary about who's offended with the use of wine. You're not under obligation to do that. You don't ask anything. But that doesn't mean you presume. That doesn't mean you offer it to everyone else when they come to your house. My friends, there will be some who will be offended no matter what you do. Ignore them. Taught you that this morning. When you run into those that are offended with you no matter what you do, and they're offended with the wine issue, drink it. Drink it. Jesus Christ spoke in parables and offended the Pharisees, and the, the, the disciples came to him and said that you've offended the Pharisees. Didn't you know that? And like I told you this morning, he said, let them alone. They be blind, leave the blind, let them both fall into the ditch. See, there are some that are going to be offended no matter what you do. We'll never be able to meet up to their standards because their standards are legalistic, pharisaical standards outside of the Word of God. You are not under an obligation to please those people. And that's a question that often comes up in people's mind. In this community, aren't we causing people to stumble by drinking alcoholic beverages? If someone was to see us and know that we went to the Greenville Church, wouldn't we be offending them? You are not under obligation to do that until they tell you that it's an offense. When it's brought to your attention, then you show Christian charity and you go out of your way if it means foregoing that particular blessing for the rest of your life. Like Paul said, he would forego meat. But once you find one of those that just bring it to your attention, want to pick on everything you do, and have already criticized most of what this church stands for, don't you let that bother you at all? You have no reason, no responsibility taught in the Word of God to be concerned for the fact that they're offended they will be offended. You won't be able to do anything unless you began telling lies that wouldn't be offensive to them. They're going to be offended with the truth for the truth's sake, and so you don't have an obligation to worry about them. Knowledge puffeth up. There aren't too many churches where a pastor will get up and preach a sermon or two sermons like I have to you. Very, very few. And there's a danger in doing it. I know the danger, but I believe the benefits far outweigh the danger. The danger is this that you're going to be puffed up with knowledge and that you're going to go around and abuse the liberty that I've taught you in the gospel. Hast thou faith, have it to thyself. My friends, this kingdom is based on righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. It's not based on meat and drink. We don't make that a criteria for membership in this church. And whether you eat or drink, whether you drink or you don't drink, you're not better or worse for doing it. Let's keep it in that place. Let's keep it to ourselves. Use it 
Thank God for His mercy in saving you from a taste-not religion. But keep it to yourself and show Christian charity. And let's not go out and spill our pearls before swine and cast that which is holy unto dogs. Let's keep it to ourselves. And may the Lord bless this congregation to be fully free in the true law of liberty and yet know how to use that law properly so that we're pleasing to our Savior and we bring no offense upon the gospel. Paul said he did everything that he could to be without offense before the Jew, the Gentile, and the church of God. He was made all things to all men that he might by all means save some for the gospel's sake. And we don't want to offend anyone or turn them away by going out on a crusade to convert the Greenville County to the moderate use of alcoholic beverages. God has not called us to that. He's called us to the use of His creation, but within limits. And I hope you understand what they are. If you have further questions, please ask me. I don't want there to be any on this subject. Rejoice in the fact that you have a Bible in your hand. You have understanding that God has given you to be able to see through a facade of learning like this, 75 Bible references on drinking. I believe everyone here that's a member of this church can easily see how the Scripture's been rested and you'll be able to defend the Word of God against this at any time. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.